Good morning, Pinion Hills. I am excited and grateful that you have chosen to come and worship with us this morning here at church. My name is Matt Mizell. I'm the lead pastor here at this particular congregation here in San Juan County. Good to have you here. Yesterday, you just saw the recap a moment ago of our wild game barbecue. There was all sorts of exotic wild animals that were here. That's why we have a stage full, full of all sorts of different animals right now. Uh, I, I have tried some pretty crazy foods in my day. A couple of years ago, I tried pigeon when I lived or visited over in Egypt. Uh, in Egypt, they don't have chicken uh, farms or, or chicken or hen houses. They have pigeon farms all throughout the area. So when you go there, you go to like pigeon filet instead of Chick-fil-A. It's like nasty. <laughs> so I don't really recommend it. But hey, I've tried it. I've also tried sea turtle when I lived in the Bahamas when I worked for a Disney Cruise Line. Tried sea turtle and had an entire turtle burger, at which point I was told it's an endangered species, which is why it's illegal to eat sea turtle in the United States. It's like eating a bald eagle, and I didn't know that. I just ate this sea turtle. Oops. Uh, tastes like chicken. In case you're curious. So I've tried a couple different exotic foods, but then yesterday I came to the Wild Game Barbecue with my family, my wife, and my kids, and we were trying different foods that we have never tried before. I tried oryx, never had that before. It's an animal with like crazy horns. Uh, tried that, tried halibut, tried wild goose. All of it was pretty good. And then somebody came and handed my wife and I what they said was alligator. Turns out it wasn't alligator. We happen to have it on video of us trying this particular food that we had never tried before. Check out this video from yesterday. So Ryan Mitchell handed my wife this. And this is alligator, right? Ryan? Alligator? Well, it's something like that. Oh, I it's something no. like it's that. It's, it's either alligator or it's not. They're not going to tell us what it is until we eat it. Until we, we eat it. it. Okay, so it might not be alligator. It could be some kind of list. I wouldn't like believe them. I don't think it's alligator. Where would you get an alligator? Is it? Oh. Are you, oh. Are you feeling a little light and low for you? What is it? What is it, Ryan? Rocky Mountain noises. Oh! <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, come on! You never spit it out. I just ate a bull nut! That's not alligator. Who here actually likes Rocky Mountain oysters? Do any of you like it? Okay, 15 of you. Good, good. God bless you. Um, my wife and I, turns out we don't like Rocky Mountain oysters. <laughs> In case you're wondering what that is, Google it later on. But, uh, but it reminds me of when uh, my wife and I took a trip up the coast of California a couple years ago. We stopped off at a place called Pismo Beach, a little uh, coast town, and there is a restaurant called McClintock's, and they're, they're notorious for having a special item on their menu. I remember opening up the menu with my wife. It, we didn't have kids around. It's just the two of us. And so we opened up the menu, and there in the appetizer section, it said turkey nuts. And I was like, what? What's that? So I called the, the, the waiter over. I was like, what's, a, what's turkey nuts? Is that like a, like a turkey dish with like cashews or peanuts or some sort of nuts on the side? He said, no, sir. Uh, turkey nuts, they are the reproductive organs of a male turkey. <laughs> We're like, gross, let's order them. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> so we ordered the turkey nuts. And when we tried the turkey nuts, my wife made the same face that you just saw in that video. She was like, ah, it's disgusting. So all that being said, some of the things that we try here in San Juan County, they're good. You're stretching yourself. You're challenging yourself. We had a great time yesterday at the Wild Game barbecue. Now today we're starting a brand new series that relates to the wild game called The Hunt. In fact, over the next uh, five weeks, we're going to be in this series all about the hunt. Now it's not about hunting for lions and tigers and bears. Thank you for five of you who are paying attention. Let's try it again. This series is not about hunting for lions and tigers and bears. 
There you are. We participate in this church. So, so it's not about that. In fact, what this whole series is, for the next five weeks, the entire month of June, every Sunday, we're going to be talking about one particular character that we see from Scripture from the Old Testament, and that is the person David. We're going to be diving in. This whole series is all about the life of David. Now, more specifically, it's all about one particular phrase that God uses to describe David. Here's how God describes David. He says he is a man after God's own heart. That's how God describes David, a man after God's own heart. So, so you might be thinking, well, how, how do I get that description? How do I got, get God to say that I'm a man or a woman? I'm a person after God's own heart. How do I get that? That's what we're going to be looking into for the next five weeks because the reality is that we're all searching for something in life. Perhaps you're searching for love. You're searching for identity. Perhaps you're searching for purpose. I came across an article recently uh, where a guy wrote all about, uh, about purpose. Michael Ligori wrote an article entitled, The Ten Questions to Ask Yourself If You're Looking for Your Life's Purpose. Now let me rattle through these questions that he says in this article. If you're looking for purpose, here's some of the questions he says you can ask yourself. Number one question is this, am I doing what I love? Great question to ask yourself because life's too short to do things that you don't love, so you might as well be passionate and have a love for the things that you're doing. Question number two, he says to ask yourself, am I surrounded by people that I care about? God says love God and love others, but if you're around people that you don't care for, perhaps you should find people that you do care for and surround yourself with people like that. Number three, here's another question to ask yourself, am I happy with where I am? And if not, if the answer is to no to that, then how can you fix that? How can you change that? Question number four, he says to ask yourself, is there more that I can do? Instead of just going with the status quo, instead of just going with, with the easiest path, is there more that you can be doing in your life? Number five is this, do I feel satisfied? If not, why? Number six, is another question to ask yourself if you're looking for purpose in your life. How do I want to be remembered? It reminds me of that, that uh, old commercial you probably, perhaps you remember for the pizza company. They say, what do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> How do you want to be remembered? What, what legacy do you want to leave? Seventh question is this, what makes me happy? What makes you happy is, is what you're doing in your life, what you're doing in your job, is it making you happy? Number eight, question to ask yourself, how do I look at today? It doesn't say, how do I look today? It's not asking for you to look in the mirror. How do I look at today? Carpe diem, right? Question number uh, nine, can I have an impact? The answer to that question, if you ask it of yourself, is yes, you can have an impact. You can change this world. You can make this world different and better because you're a part of it. Last question he says in this article to ask yourself if you're looking for purpose is this, what am I waiting for? Now, I love this question. Whatever you know that you could be doing, if you're looking for purpose, what are you waiting for? Great question. Are you waiting for something as you're searching, as you're looking, as you're hunting for purpose in your life? Is, is there something that you're waiting for? Because you could jump in right now and do something as you're searching for purpose in your life. Pastor Rick Warren came out with a book several years ago called The Purpose Driven Life. Several years ago after this book came out, I had the opportunity to meet Rick Warren out in California. And, and he was talking about this book and he said it's the, it's the second best-selling book of all time, second only to the Bible. That's a, that's a pretty impactful List of sales. Tens of millions of people have purchased this book that's all about the purpose of your life. Perhaps you've gone through it. Maybe you've gone through a Bible study regarding the purpose-driven life. There's millions, if not billions, of people who are asking the question, I'm searching for something. I'm looking for something. Maybe, maybe you're looking for something. Maybe you've been searching, I don't know, for something like your keys because you forget your keys and you forget where they're at and you need one of those little beepers, a little remote control to find the keys and then you lose the remote control and you're like, ah, I'm losing everything. Maybe you lose your phone a lot and you're, you're trying to find your phone. You have a little app where you can pull up the Find My Phone app and you'd find your, your phone. Perhaps, perhaps you've just lost your marbles. And you've got a few screws loose and you're looking, looking for those. Or maybe you can really resonate with the band from, from the 90s, the U2 band, when they sing the song, I still haven't found what I'm Yeah, some of the U2 fans in here. Maybe you still haven't even found what you're looking for. 
I don't know your background, I don't know your culture, I don't know your, your native tongue, whatever it is, here's what I want to challenge for you. People are searching for things in life. We know that. Here's the challenge that I want to present to you. No matter what your strengths are, your passions are, no matter what your career choice is, here's what I want to challenge you. In your life, throughout the duration of your life, I want to be a person who challenges you to, to be on the hunt for God's heart. Hunt for God's heart. That's what we be, should be searching for, looking for, hunting for. Hunt for God's heart. Now, how do you do that? How do you be a person who is on the hunt for God's heart? That's the whole purpose of this entire series called The Hunt. How do you become somebody who God says, you're a man, a woman, after God's own heart? So that being said, if you have your Bibles, turn to your, uh, to your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. I don't presume that everybody knows all 66 books memorized, so it's okay if you flip to the very front and you lose, use your index to find out where the book of 1 Samuel is. It's totally fine. Sometimes I even use it to find where the books are. Uh, so it's fine if you don't know exactly where the, uh, the book of 1 Samuel is. Let me help you out. In the very beginning is the book of Genesis, then there's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then there's First and Second Samuel. If you hit First or Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, you've gone too far, back it up a little bit. We're going to be in First Samuel starting in chapter 1. Now, before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of the context as far as what we're jumping into. There's a woman that we see named Hannah. Everybody say Hannah. That wasn't good enough. Let's try again. There's a woman named Hannah. Everybody say Hannah. Good. So Hannah is a woman who struggles with infertility. She really desperately wants a child, but she can't have a child. And she goes to God, and she pleads and begs and prays to God, will you please give me a child? Please, oh please, oh please, God, give me a child. Her husband comes to her and tries to console her, but his words don't really help. So she goes to God one day, and in 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you're already there, you can follow along, starting in verse 10. Here's what Hannah says to God. This is the beginning of the story of David. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him back to the Lord for all the days of his life. Now basically what Hannah's doing, she's making an if-then statement. God, if you give me a kid, then I'll give him back. If you give me a son, then I'll, I'll give him back to you. Sometimes we make these bargains, we make these deals. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you do this, then I'll do that. Sometimes we make those deals with God. Sometimes he, he goes along with it, sometimes he doesn't. And in this particular case, he hears the prayers of Hannah and sees the desires of her heart. And he says, okay, I'm going to grant you a son. So she allows him, or allows Hannah to have a son. And she names her son Samuel. Samuel literally means, the name of Samuel means because I asked God for him. She names her son Samuel. What a cool name for somebody struggling with infertility that's finally given a child. Sam, Samuel, what a great name to name a child. So she raises him. She nurses Samuel. And when he's a little bit older, when he doesn't need, need her anymore, she does a gut-wrenching move. She made the if-then statement already God, to, to God. If you give me a son, I will give him back. So when he was old enough to no longer need her, she brought Samuel, her son, to the temple. And she left him there. She said, God, you and I made an agreement. If you gave me a son, I'm going to give him back. So I don't really know how to do that. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give my son back. I'm going to leave him here at the temple. Now, there is a priest at the temple that wound up becoming a caretaker for Samuel. So now Samuel's living in the temple. He's growing up under the, the, the mentorship, under the guidance of the priest who lives in that particular temple. And the, the priest teaches him a lot about honoring God, following God. In fact, as, as Samuel grows up, past his teenage, into his young adult, into his adult years, now people are going to Samuel for, for advice, for godly wisdom, because he's grown up in the temple. He's, he's a guy that has kind of absorbed all, all this godly knowledge. So people are coming to him. 
And as he gets older in his years, the, the nation of Israel begins to notice that there's other countries around that have kings, but the nation of Israel has never had a king. They've always had unofficial leaders. Because remember, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, when they're held in captivity, Moses was their leader, but he wasn't technically a king. Then Joshua was their leader. He wasn't technically a king. Now Samuel is the unofficial leader of the, the nation of Israel. But the people in Israel, they're like, well, that country's got a king. And, and that country's got a king. And that country, we're one of the only nations in the world that doesn't have a king. We should have a king too. So the natural person that would become king would be, at this point, Samuel. Because He's already got leadership. He's already got followers. He's already got people coming to him. So the, the, the likely candidate to become the king would be Samuel. So a bunch of the elders, a bunch of the people in the nation of Israel, they come to Samuel one day, and he probably thinks they're going to invite him to be the king. But here's what they say, starting in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8. Flip ahead. We're going to be going through this story pretty quickly. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. People of Israel come to Samuel, and they say this. They say, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now, here's, here's reading between the lines. They're saying, give us a king, but we don't want you. Ouch. I'm sure for Samuel that stung, because he was already the unofficial leader of Israel. And the people of Israel are coming and saying, hey, we want a king. We know that you're the likely candidate. You're, you're the one that, that we would go to to become the king, but we want a king. We just don't want you to become the king. We know you're like next in line and we've never had a king before. You're the logical choice, but we want somebody else. It stung for Samuel. Perhaps you can empathize. Maybe you've been in a job before and you've been working towards that promotion. You're the next in line. You're the, the most likely candidate. You're the one that's most qualified, but then somebody else gets hired and gets put in that position instead of you. And you're like, what, what did I do wrong? Why, why, am, why was I not picked for that? So he's having a hard time. Samuel's having a difficult time. Not only did they not pick him, for the king, but they also say, well, Samuel, you're just, too, you're just too old. We don't want you to be a king because you're too old, which I say all the time to people, if you are still pumping blood and breathing, God ain't done with you yet. <laughs> no matter how old you are, God is not done with you yet until the day that you die, and then you, then, I don't know, maybe you play harps for God in heaven someday, but, but if you are still pumping blood and breathing, God ain't done with you yet, but the nation of Israel disagrees with that, that thought, that concept. So they, they go to Samuel, and they say, we want a king, we don't want it to be you, because you're too old. So this bugs Samuel. It, is, it, it, it irks him. It bothers him. Verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. He was, he was angered. He was frustrated. He was upset. They didn't pick me to be the king. I'm the logical choice to be the king. So it displeased Samuel. So what did he do? He went and punched a hole in the wall. No, just kidding. He didn't do that. Sometimes that's what people do. Guilty. I punched a hole in the wall one time, and then I, I was like, now i got to figure out how to patch a hole in the wall. Like, I don't know how to do that either. I go on YouTube and try to figure out how to punch a hole in the, or fix a, a punched hole in the wall. He didn't punch a hole in the wall. So what did he do? He went and started complaining to everybody he knew about the other people, the elders in, in, uh, in Israel. No, he didn't do that either. And what did he do instead? He pitched a pity party. He pitched a fit. No, he, he didn't do that either. He got onto social media and he started blasting all the people in Israel and 3,000 years ago, social media. No, he <laughs> obviously didn't exist, but he probably didn't do that either. No, what did he do? He had displeased Samuel. So what did he do? He prayed to the Lord. Now, is that our natural response? When you're angry, when you're upset, when you're bugged at something, 
Do you punch the hole in the wall? Do you get angry? Do you go blast people on social media? Do you get revenge? Do you, do you get retribution? Or, or do you pray to the Lord? Samuel must have known something about God and how he deals with people who are displeased, angry, upset uh, when they're angered. In fact, later on, we, we see David writes this in Psalm 34, 17. He says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. When they cry, the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted, friends? Are you crushed in spirit? Have things not gone the way that you've hoped that they would go? Have you spent time crying on your own? God can be present for you. He is there for you. He is, he is strength for you when you feel weak. This is what David realizes. This is what Samuel realized. Rather than just being frustrated and angry and punching holes in the wall, when things didn't go his way, when he was displeased, he went and prayed to God for comfort. And when he did that, here's what happened. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. When Samuel goes to God, here's what the Lord told him. He said, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And this is God speaking to Samuel. He's saying, they didn't reject you. Don't take it personally, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me because they know that you follow me, Samuel. Again, perhaps you can empathize with this. There's people that you know that don't like you because you're a Christian. Perhaps people are like, well, I don't like being around you because you're too judgmental. And the reality is you're not judgmental. Perhaps you have morals. You have standards. You don't do things that other people do. But you're not judging people, but people don't want to be around you because you represent Christ. Don't take it personally. It's not you that they're opposed to. It's Jesus in you. It's God living in you. That's what they're opposed to. So God comes to Samuel and says, hey, don't be discouraged because they're not rejecting you. Don't take it personally, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And to be honest with you, I think this is probably a little bit difficult for God too. Because who's rejecting him? The nation of Israel. The Israelites are God's chosen people. Remember, the Israelites, they're the ones held in captivity with Pharaoh in Egypt. And God provided them a way out in a mass exodus to get away from Pharaoh. God's people got out. He led them not just out of captivity from slavery and, a, and, a, and hell on earth. He led them to a place that was flowing with milk and honey. He led them to a place that was like paradise. He got them out of that captivity. He gave them a hope. He gave them a future. He gave them a life. He gave them all the things that they didn't have in Egypt. These are God's chosen people. He's done all this stuff for the people of Israel. And now they're saying, well, we don't want Samuel as our king and we don't want God as our leader. How discouraging that must be for God. This is all just foreshadowing for when Jesus shows up. Jesus goes to the cross. He gives his very life for people who are murdering him. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He gives up everything. Jesus gives up everything for people who reject him as the leader of their lives. What a discouraging reality for Samuel. They don't want him as their leader. They don't want God as their leader God says, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. I'm sure that was heartbreaking for God. So the nation of Israel, they wind up choosing a king, they wind up getting a king by the name of Saul. Saul becomes the king, the first king ever of the nation of Israel. And Saul becomes the king. Now Saul is a guy who doesn't honor God, he doesn't respect God. God tells Saul, go right, Saul goes left. God says, do this, he doesn't, he, goes, he does something different. So he's not obedient to God's word. And after a period of time, as Saul was the king, God at one point is displeased with Saul because he's not honoring to God. Saul's not uh, listening, he's not obeying the word of the Lord. And so after a little while, God goes to Samuel, who's now a prophet of the Lord. God goes to Samuel and says, I want you to give this message back to King Saul. Here's the message that Saul or uh, Samuel gives to Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Fast forward a little bit if you're following along in your scripture. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Here's what Samuel says to Saul on behalf of God. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
God has rejected you as king. Yikes. Saul, because you rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Now, there's two words that I want to emphasize and focus on in this particular verse. It's the last two words, as king. God has not rejected Saul as a person. He hasn't rejected Saul as a man. He's rejected him as king. And there's, a, there's an important distinction. Because the reality is that when, when you go right instead of going left, when God tells you to do this and you don't do it, when you're disobedient, when you don't follow through the word of the Lord, when you're disobedient to God, that's called sin. And there's consequences to your sin. There's consequences to my sin. When God tells us to do something and we don't do it, and we're sinning, there's always consequences to our sin. Now, sometimes the consequences are internal. Sometimes there's shame, there's regret, there's remorse. Sometimes those are the consequences. But other times there's, there's external consequences. Sometimes we lose, lose something that's precious to us. We lose a job because of our sin. Perhaps we lose our spouse because of a sin or the respect of our children or our, our legacy or our reputation. There's things on the outside that sometimes are the consequences of sin. And some of you, some of you, it was a struggle even coming in here this morning because you've got some significant things that you've been wrestling with, some, some poor decisions you've made. And you're like, I don't know if I fit in in a bunch of people who are perfect. <laughs> Newsflash, none of us are perfect for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You fit right in right here. But sometimes it's a struggle for people. To come in because you're like, if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew my history, you only knew my baggage, there's nobody here that could love me. There's nobody could love my history, my background. There's nobody that could love me the way that I am. And here's the reality. You're wrong. God loves you. Despite all the things you've done wrong, in spite of, of the decisions you made, there is nothing you will do that will ever cost you God's love. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your title. It might cost you as king, but you will never lose the love of God. That's why Paul said this in Romans 8, 38 and 39 to the group of Romans. He said, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, uh, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing you have ever done, nothing you will ever do will be so caustic that God will stop loving you. You might lose your reputation. You might lose things that are valuable and precious to you. There's always consequences to sins. Shoot, you might even lose God's blessing, but you will never lose God's love. If you're taking notes, you can write that in. Write that down. You might lose God's blessings. You will never Friends, never, ever, 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 ever lose God's love. Saul's not being obedient. He's not following after God. He's not obeying God's word. So he disobeys God over and over and over. It cost him his job, his title as king. There's consequences to our sin. So it cost him his job as, as king. But while he's still king, before God replaces him, God goes back to the prophet Samuel and says, okay, I'm going to replace Saul. Saul's not being obedient. I'm rejecting him as the king, not as a person, not as a man, but I'm rejecting him as king. I'm going to find a new king. So here's what God says to the prophet Samuel. Fast forward chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. God says to Samuel, he says, I'm sending you to Jesse. Everybody say Jesse. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be the king. So Samuel's like, okay, I got to go on a road trip. Got to go to Bethlehem. Got to get all my stuff, my backpack, all my stuff. And I'm going to the little town of Bethlehem. Isn't it interesting that two of the most significant kings in the history of the world came from a little town of Bethlehem? Samuel gets all his stuff. He starts going on a road trip, shows up to Bethlehem. He's, he's told by God, 
the son, one of the sons of Jesse is going to become the next king. So he probably doesn't know who Jesse is. So he shows up in a little town of Bethlehem. Thankfully, it's a little town, so he's probably like, Jesse? Anybody named Jesse in this town of Bethlehem? Jesse? Jesse shows up. I'm Jesse. He's like, good. I got good news for you. God told me to tell you that one of your boys, one of your sons, is going to be the next king of Israel. Isn't that awesome? So Jesse's like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So he calls his boys over. All boys, line up. One of y'all is going to become king of Israel. So they're probably puffing up. Yeah, one of us is going to become king. Well, the firstborn son, typically with sons that become kings, it's usually the firstborn son. So the firstborn son, his name was Eliab. And Eliab, he's the first up. And so Jesse says, here's my boy. He's my oldest son. He's likely going to be the king because look at him. He's tall. He's handsome. He's a, he's a good-looking guy. And so even Samuel's like, well, yeah, that's probably the, the next king. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before uh, be, be, here before the Lord. Surely this is the guy. Firstborn son, this has got to be him. Look at him. He's tall. He's handsome. He likes long walks on the beach, of course. This is the next king of Israel. But then in the very next verse, look at verse 7. 16, chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Again, he's not rejecting him as a person or as a man or as a boy. He's rejecting him as the future king of Israel. Now, let me stop here for just a second, because God is under no obligation to tell us why he does what he does. Perhaps you've had questions that you've had for God. How come my family member died of cancer, God? And you don't have answers. You wish you did, but you don't. How come I got into that car accident? How, I lost, how come I lost that loved one in that car accident? How, how come I deal with depression and anxiety, God? And it sounds like it's crickets on the other side. You've got questions for God, and perhaps on this side of eternity, you're not going to get the answers that you would desire. Perhaps on the other side of the eternity, you could sit for an eternity at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ and ask him whatever questions that you want and get all the answers in the world. But sometimes on this side of heaven, there's questions that we have, and God is under no obligation to answer any of our questions, because his ways are not man's ways. Man's ways are not his ways. He works in mysterious ways. We don't under, always, always understand why God is doing the things he's doing in the way that he's doing them. Yet all that being said, God says, I'm rejecting Eliab as the future king. And even though he's under no obligation to tell us why he does what he does, he gives us a little insight into far, as far as how his mind and how his heart works. Here's what God says through Samuel, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, here's what's fascinating about this to me. Who made your outward appearance? God did. Now, I know that many of you women, you dye your hair like every week, so your outward appearance slightly changes as you decide to change your hair from pink to blonde to platinum to whatever it is. But God, God made your outward appearance. He, he made your eye color. He made your skin color. The Bible says he... He designed you. He knit you together. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. He made your outward appearance. So here's, here's the interesting thing to me. God's not concerned with his creation. That's not what's impressive because he designed it. He made your outward appearance. What he's concerned with is what you've done with his creation. He's concerned with what you've allowed in your heart. He's not concerned on the outward appearance. He's concerned with what's inside your heart. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God cares about your heart most. God cares about your heart most. Of everything that you have to offer this world, God cares about your heart the most, which is why King Solomon, one of the wisest men, if not the wisest men of all time, he said this in Proverbs 4.23. He said, above all else, guard your heart, 
Above everything else that you're guarding in your life, everything that you're responsible for in life, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It is of utmost importance that you care about what goes into your heart because from everything, everything you do flows from the overflow of your heart. So God says to Samuel, I'm rejecting Eliab as the future king. I know he's tall. I know he's good looking. I know know he seems like a perfect candidate, but I'm rejecting him. Obviously, God knows something about the quality of the heart of the firstborn son, Eliab. So they say, okay, I guess, Eliab, you're not going to become the future king of Israel. So Jesse, father, he says, okay, number two, son, come in here. Maybe, maybe God's going to pick you to be the king. And God says, nope, rejected. Okay, what about the third son? Here's the third son. Nope, rejected. Well, what about the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh son? Rejected, rejected, rejected. At which point there's no more sons around. And so even Samuel's like, um, God, you said that the son of Jesse was going to be the next king. And so here's what happens, 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Samuel asks Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Because God's rejected the first seven of them. Uh, Jesse, Jesse answered, well, they're still the youngest and he is tending sheep. So Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So they, they're sending a messenger. Go get the eighth son off, the, off the, the, the fields where he's tending to the sheep. And I'm, I'm sure these other seven brothers are like, wait, what? You're going to go get the, the youngest brother, the, the baby of the You're going to bring him in? And, he, and you're going to consider him to be the king? He's tending sheep. Look at us. We're soldiers. We're warriors. We're in the army. He's tending to sheep. Do you know what sheep are? They're stinky, dumb animals. That's what they are. Anybody that, that is a shepherd over stinky, dumb animals must also be stinky and dumb himself. Like, why are you considering our youngest brother to become the king? They bring in David. Here's what it says in Scripture about David. Verse 12, chapter 16. It says about this youngest eighth boy. He was glowing with health. He had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, I find this interesting that it's even in Scripture that it says he's glowing with health, that he has fine appearance, that he has handsome features. Because we just learned God doesn't look at the outside. So obviously there's something on the inside of, of, of David, this eighth son, that makes God say, this is the one. So he tells Samuel, God says, rise and anoint him. So in the very next verse, 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed this eighth son in the presence of the brothers. I get that, that that was exciting for the brothers. Like, what? Our youngest brother's getting anointed in front of us to become the future king of Israel? And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon, boom, there's David. All of a sudden, this, that, that whole thing was all about the introduction of David. David, the eighth son in the, the whole family under Jesse. David, the runt of the family. David, the baby of the family. David, the one who was out tending to sheep. He's not even a warrior or soldier like his brothers. He's a sheep herder. David is the one that God chooses to be the next king of Israel. Now, why would they pick David? Why would God select and pull him out Obviously, there is something about his heart that stood out to God. Now, in the next four weeks of this whole series, we're going to dive more and really dissect what was in, God, in David's heart that God said, I pick him. He's a man after God's own heart. How did he get to that, that place? We're going to go through that in the rest of this whole sermon. So I want to encourage you, or the whole series, I want to encourage you, come back next week because we're going to pick up where we're leaving off right now. We're going to pick that up next week. But before we move on, here's a question that I have for you. Obviously, God is concerned about your heart. He didn't, didn't pick Eliab, didn't pick the first seven sons because of whatever the, the status of the heart was. And then there's something about David's heart that stood out to God. So here's the question that I want you to ask yourself this morning. What is in my heart? 
If God is so concerned about our hearts, if that's what he's most concerned about, what is in my heart? It almost sounds like a Capital One commercial. <laughs> What's in your wallet? What's in your heart? <laughs> the Bible is full of verses that talk about the value and the importance of your heart. Paul writes this in Philippians 4, 7. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you've got to guard your your heart. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 8. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 45. He says, for the overflow of the heart is what the mouth speaks. What you put in is what comes out. It is of utmost importance that you understand what's going into your heart. Here's what David later on says in the story of David, Psalm 26, 2. He says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart. We have to understand that our heart is of utmost importance. You want to be a person? You want to be described as a man or a woman, a person after God's own heart? Before you address that, you have to address what's in your heart. So what is in your heart? What have you allowed in there of, 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 of everything else, above all else? Guard your heart. Have you been guarding your heart? Have you been conscientiously approving what gets in and, and rejecting things that don't get in? What is in your heart? This morning, we're going to take communion together. We take communion as a church first Sunday, first Sunday of every month, and, and this being June 2nd, we are taking communion together in just a moment. In just a second, you're going to be able to come forward and grab the elements, and whatever section you can come forward, you can exit to your right and come forward and take the elements, and you can take the cracker, and, and it's representing Jesus had said in his last supper, he said, take this in remembrance of my body that's broken for you. And then he said, take this juice and drink this in remembrance of my blood that has been shed and spilled for you. But before you take the elements, we, we, we take communion on your own. So you can come forward and, and you can bring the elements back to your chair. And the band's going to be singing a song. You can stand, you can sing, you can take your, com, your communion elements when you're ready. But before you do it, here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to challenge yourself to examine your heart. That's what we're called to do before we ever take communion. Is examine our hearts. Is there anything ungodly you're harboring in your heart? What's in your heart? you got bitterness? You got resentment, a refusal to forgive somebody, you got greed, you got lust, you got envy. What's in your heart? What are you harboring in your heart? Above all else, guard your heart. What have you allowed in to your heart? You got love, you got compassion, you have grace, kindness, joy, peace. What is in your heart? So as the band sings the song, there's, there's a, a lyric that we start off, the first lyric of this song says, God, I need you to soften my heart, to break me apart. I need you. So I want to challenge you, before you take communion this morning, to be honest with yourself before God is your witness. What is in your heart? And if there is anything that is ungodly, anything that is displeasing to the Lord, confess that. Ask him to clean out your heart, to renew your heart so that your heart could be more in alignment with the heart of God. So when you're ready, if you're ready, come forward and take the elements. But before you do, examine your own heart. <laughs>